The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Take a look at this. It's highly theoretical, Ben. Theoretical? Do I have to remind you that theory is a beginning of solution? Is Europe's disease carried on the wind? Is it, Ben? Could be. And if it is? It isn't, Verge. Is that what you really think, or just what you'd like to think? I, I cannot accept half-baked theories that sell newspapers. I'm, I'm a scientist, not an alarmist. You're whistling past the graveyard. Is that a commentary on my work at the lab? We both know how hard you've worked. I'm sorry, Ben. I just can't accept the idea of universal disease. Robert, is it possible this germ or virus could be airborne? Anything is possible, Verge. The best brains in the world have been running through this thing with a fine-tooth comb. The germ is visible under a microscope, but it's not like any bacilli ever known. In what way? It can't be destroyed by any process we've been able to uncover. But with the whole world trying, there must be a solution. Hey, Mommy! When are you gonna cut the cake? Coming! Coming! Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, April 23rd, 2020. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be On last week's show, I brought up a few cryptic suspicions I was having about this whole COVID-19 pandemic situation, citing what I called three very disturbing themes emerging about the whole coronavirus pandemic. Number one, the increasing possibility that the SARS-CoV-2 virus was indeed engineered and manufactured in a Wuhan lab. Number two, the possibility that the virus is indeed not like any other virus in some very fundamental ways, yet to manifest themselves. And number three, the political creation of a near-permanent state of emergency. Now last week we only dealt really with the third theme and maybe a bit of the second one. But I mentioned the Wuhan lab possibility for a reason. The story had been emerging through very credible news sources, though not in the mainstream corporate outlets, and seemed to be based on some very credible evidence. And last week, I promised to revisit that narrative at some future date should circumstances merit it. Well, apparently, circumstances now do merit raising that narrative, especially since last week the Canadian federal government let it be known it was open to a new law to fight pandemic misinformation. In particular, According to a recent CBC News item, quote, the misinformation regarding conspiracy theories about what triggered the pandemic claims that it was cooked up in a lab, for example, end quote. Now, for me, that was a sure sign that the virus was indeed cooked up in a lab. And guess what? One week later, that is now the generally accepted narrative almost across the board. And so today, I plan to investigate both that narrative and the one about how the SARS-CoV-2 virus is unlike any other viruses so far encountered. 
At least that's what we're being told. Which is exactly what we'll begin doing right after this reminder. That you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow us and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at www.justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, our archived broadcasts, and of course, where you can offer your financial support to our efforts. Remember, everyone who donates $25 or more will receive a copy of the 52-page full-color publication, Climate Essentials, written by one of our regular guests, Dave Plum. Now, once again, let me state from the outset that although the outbreak of COVID-19 and the spread of the SARS-CoV-2 virus are being used as the justification for the current global shutdown of the economy, the two issues are completely separate considerations when engaged in any discussion about how to resolve them. The issue of how to defeat the SARS-CoV-2 virus, for example, is a technical one involving biology, medicine, and a broad range of sciences to say nothing about how we personally behave and conduct ourselves should we wish to avoid getting the virus. But the issue of the state force shutdown, which continues to be justified on the basis of COVID-19, is a separate one from the disease, contrary to the assertions of our politicians and their health care advisors. Of course, the urgent issue of the day, when and how to restart the economy. The time is now, and the how of restarting the economy is a backwards way of looking at it. You don't have to restart the economy. You have to stop stopping the economy, for heaven's sakes. The rest will take care of itself, just as it was doing before politicians declared themselves tyrants. I mean, just take your foot off the brake. And they're all talking about managing the economy back to its former state of freedom, which is a contradiction since that would mean freedom from the very politicians who are managing it. So just get out of the way, guys, and everything will return back to normal as best it can. And the shutdown simply cannot go on any longer, no matter the risks involved with COVID-19. We covered that argument pretty thoroughly last week on the show. Canada's government is basically saying that we'll never get our freedoms back as long as the coronavirus does not have an effective vaccine. And that, given the nature of this virus, could be forever. Hence, the new normal that Justin Trudeau thinks is the proper response to this. Now, the following article came from CBC News, posted to its site on April 15th with the headline, Federal Government Open to New Law to Fight Pandemic Misinformation. Now, the part that attracted my attention, I'm going right down to the middle of it. It says, NDP MP Charlie Angus said, this is not a question of freedom of speech. This is a question of people who are actually actively working to spread disinformation, whether it's through troll bot farms, whether it's state operators, or whether it's really conspiracy theorist cranks who seem to get their kicks out of creating havoc. And they point out how much of the misinformation and disinformation in circulation was promoting fake cures for COVID-19 or offering tips on how to avoid catching it. And most recently, the misinformation has shifted to conspiracy theories about what triggered the pandemic, claims that it was cooked up in a lab, for example. And of course, that's the example we'll be looking at today. Interestingly, 
Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's government set up an elaborate system to watch out for attempts to disrupt last year's federal election through disinformation, including a committee that brought together several departments and a special group chaired by the clerk of the Privy Council to sound the alarm. And yes, and that was something that we have been dealing with on this show. I call it fascism. That kind of a committee should never exist. Disinformation during an election campaign? Are you kidding me? The whole thing's a series of disinformation. You have to figure it out yourself and you go into it knowing that the politicians are going to tell you what you want to hear. The article goes on to say that COVID-19 has presented cyber criminals and fraudsters with an effective lure to encourage victims to visit fake websites, open email attachments, and click on the next message links. These emails typically impersonate health organizations and can even pretend to be from the government of Canada. Health Canada has the lead on monitoring for misinformation. For example, it is sending compliance letters to companies it finds making false or questionable claims about COVID-19. Now that's interesting. I'd like to know how Health Canada would know whether or not a virus came from a lab in Wuhan and not from somewhere else. How does a conspiracy theory fit into this kind of misinformation? They're two totally different categories. And this was interesting. Last week, the Canadian Heritage Department announced $3 million in grants to eight groups across the country to combat false and misleading COVID-19 information. Well, isn't that interesting? So they're already spending money and they haven't even had to pass a law to start fighting the misinformation. (laughs) I notice on the byline here, they have a headline saying, far-right groups may try to take advantage of pandemic watchdogs warn. Yeah, it's all those far-right groups that are taking advantage of this one. Holy cow. And then says NDP MP Charlie Angus, I think it would be reasonable to enact with the RCMP, with our security officials and some public officials, a team to monitor disinformation and have the power to shut it down so it does not interfere with the efforts of our frontline medical workers, said Angus. We need to be taking all the measures right now because we don't know how long we're going to be in this crisis, end quote. Well, there you go. You know, it's always the people who are spreading the fake news who want to ban it. So what's the best way to respond to fake news, to misinformation, to all the rest of it? Tell the truth. Give us the real story, one that matches the facts of reality and is reasonable and that you can prove with evidence. Demonstrate how and why a particular instance of disinformation is incorrect and correct it. When no such attempt is even made, then you know who the faker is. When governments want to censor something, it's always the truth that's censored. And I learned this firsthand. I recall my direct experiences with the Carla Homolka case way back in the 90s, who together with Paul Bernardo raped, tortured, and killed three teenage girls, including Homolka's own sister. When Homolka and Bernardo trials were going on, Canadians were not allowed to hear the news updates about the trials while the media in the rest of the world was free to report on it, and it did. At the time, the internet was in its infancy, and the most popular form of social media were platforms called bulletin boards, where anyone could post text messages and share them with the world. What was truly bizarre during the reports of the Homolka trial was that the only information that the government would clamp down on was the accurate information. All of the other conspiracy theories and false narratives carried on without consequence. And one of the victims of this clampdown was an ex-OPP officer named Gordon Dom, who would go to the United States, buy up some newspapers that were accurately reporting on the trial, and bring them back to Canada to disseminate the news to Canadians. 
Because this was both a freedom of speech issue as well as a fundamental justice issue, the Freedom Party of Ontario, of course, of which I am president, sponsored public dinners and events featuring Dom, who got to address issues ranging from feminism to prison sentencing, all of which were relevant to the case. And all of this remains fully documented on the website of the Freedom Party of Ontario. But the bottom line for our purpose today is that the only victim of government censorship and thought control is always the truth, the facts, an account of reality itself. Never trust a government that wants to use censorship and suppression as its means of correcting misinformation or disinformation. The government never has anything to worry about when it comes to lies. What scares anybody is the truth. You can't handle the truth, right? Let's face it, we all know where most of the fake news originates. And one of the big questions that begs asking when the government cites claims that it was cooked up in a lab is... Why does it even matter if we do or don't believe this? And why should we not believe it, since it now seems to be the accepted fact of the matter? So apparently the Canadian federal government is open to a new law to fight fake news about the My Sharona Cyrus online. What could possibly go wrong with that? Viva Fry, Montreal litigator turned YouTuber. A lot of people have been messaging me, DMing me, putting comments in the comment section that I have to look into Canada's efforts to create new laws to combat online disinformation about the My Sharona Cyrus. And bear in mind, there is no draft legislation to go over. Right now, it is just an idea that is being floated around the federal government. Federal government open to new law to fight pandemic misinformation. It's one of several measures the government is considering to counter fake news about the virus online. Elizabeth Thompson, CBC News. CBC News, that sounds oddly familiar. Oh yeah, didn't they just run a front page story on Andrew Shear boarding a packed flight to Ottawa despite social distancing guidelines? That packed flight being a nine-seat government jet and seven of the nine people on that plane being Andrew Shear, his wife, and five kids? Oh yeah, that's CBC. Let's hear what they have to say about the government creating new laws to fight misinformation online. The federal government is considering introducing legislation to make it an offense to knowingly spread misinformation that could harm people, says Privy Council President Dominique Leblanc. Leblanc told CBC News he is interested in British MP Damien Collins' call for laws to punish those responsible for spreading dangerous misinformation online about the My Sharona Cyrus. Leblanc said he has discussed the matter already with other cabinet ministers, including Justice Minister David Lametti. If the government decides to follow through, he said it could take a while to draft legislation. Extraordinary times require extraordinary measures, and it is about protecting the public, he said. Doesn't it always seem that the wholesale forfeiture of fundamental civil liberties is always about protecting the public? Call me a cynic, but it seems that the government is always about taking away your rights for your own protection. And when I read about the federal government contemplating the creation of new laws to protect the general public from the dangerous spread of misinformation, I ask myself if we don't already have something in the criminal code which has 850 some odd articles that already protects against that. Criminal negligence. Section 219. Everyone is criminally negligent who, in doing anything or in omitting to do anything that it is his duty to do, shows wanton or reckless disregard for the lives or safety of other persons. Fraudulent misrepresentations. Section 380. Everyone who, by deceit, falsehood, or other fraudulent means, whether or not it is a false pretense within the meaning of this act, defrauds the public or any person, whether ascertained or not, of any property, money, or valuable security, or any any service. 
It seems to me that if the concern is people spreading disinformation or misinformation in order to sell fake cures, that the existing criminal act of fraud would probably protect against that. Let's get back to the article. Opposition leader Andrew Scheer criticized the idea of using legislation to curb misinformation. We're concerned when this government starts talking about free speech issues, Scheer told reporters at a news conference Thursday. They've got a terrible history over the past few years of proposing ideas that would infringe upon free speech. Anytime this government starts talking about regulating what people can say and not say, we start off the conversation with a great deal of healthy skepticism. Scheer added, pointing out that the government has changed its pandemic messaging on travel restrictions and the use of masks. The comments come as governments around the world struggle to curb dangerous misinformation and disinformation circulating about the My Sharona Cyrus. Collins is calling for legislation to combat online disinformation, perhaps modeled on Germany's laws governing online hate speech or France's legislation countering disinformation during election campaigns. It's such a serious public emergency that I think for someone to knowingly, willingly, and at scale and maliciously spread this content should be an offense, he said. And equally for tech companies, if it is highlighted to them that someone is doing this and they don't act against them doing it, then it should be an offense for them to have failed to act. They would have failed in their duty of care. So the contemplated criminal prohibition would not relate only to spreading disinformation and misinformation online, it would also hold tech companies liable if they don't remove it from their platforms? This literally sounds like nothing other than George Orwell's Ministry of Truth. Shutting down misinformation and disinformation. And the question I'm asking myself now is, who determines what is misinformation and disinformation? Would our government consider it to be misinformation or disinformation to make a public statement to the effect that there is no clear evidence of human-to-human transmission of the My Sharona Cyrus? Would our government consider it misinformation or disinformation to publicly assert that the wearing of face masks is in fact no protection against the My Sharona Osiris? Because I've got to tell you, if so, our government might very well be talking about shutting down the WHO and holding them responsible. Because some of you might actually be unaware of the fact that these two statements are in fact statements that came out of the World Health Organization, the WHO themselves. Admittedly, the WHO asserted that the Chinese authorities found no clear evidence of human-to-human transmission on January 14th, 2020 in the early stages of the outbreak. There is no doubt that if that statement were asserted today, it would be considered disinformation or misinformation. And therein lies the fundamental problem of fact-checking at large, let alone trying to criminalize conduct based on what is accepted as fact on a given date. Information today can be misinformation in a mere three months, and misinformation today can be truth in another three months. One does not combat misinformation by criminalizing freedom of speech. As counterintuitive as it may sound, by criminalizing speech, one in fact sort of legitimizes that speech, or at least gives it more credence in the eyes of those who would be inclined to believe it in the first place. The only remedy to the inherent dangers of free speech is more free speech. It's an amazing phenomenon, but typically the unfettered access to freedom of speech allows the truth to rise to the top. re-examining our relationship with China, the source of the virus, and whether it was deliberate or deliberately misleading. Right now, the read on all of that with retired Brigadier General Anthony Tata. Um, General, good to have you. You've heard the stories in the back and forth. They recently, that is the Chinese, up the number of deaths that are being reported out of Wuhan to a little over 3,000, but their, their total death count right now is remarkably low when you consider a little bit more than 8,800 uh, compared to where we are, that it isn't and doesn't seem realistic. So even now, are, are you trusting the numbers you're getting out of China? I would not trust anything that comes out of China right now. You know, what happened, whether it was a deliberate um, manufactured virus or uh, something that 
uh, happened, an accident in the Wuhan uh, uh, testing center there. Um, they, the Chinese government deliberately withheld information, deliberately manipulated information, and the numbers that you just articulated are an example of that. Uh, they suppressed uh, whistleblowers who were trying to talk about how bad this was, and particularly the human-to-human uh, contagion aspect of this, that uh, uh, it is uh, was a deliberate act of misinformation by the Chinese government, and it is tantamount to detonating a nuclear bomb accidentally and killing 150,000 people. It's the same thing, in my view. I, I would say this is exclusively uh, within the realm of China and China lies and China misinformation. There, there is. Uh, we should give no quarter kneel to China. There, there should be no, nothing spared. This is a communist dictatorship that hid the information. They shut down travel within their own country, but they allowed the virus to go to other right. countries. They intentionally allowed this to happen, and knowing how bad it was, and they shut down dissenters, they shut down whistleblowers, they shut down travel to protect themselves, but they let others that were infected right. go around the world, and they've killed 150,000 people. All right, so much we don't know. Well, that's an understatement for sure. So much we don't know. You know, there are a lot of unknowns. That's a refrain about this virus that is beginning to make me suspicious about the agenda behind those who choose to act on what they don't know. Most political actions taken so far have been based on unknowns rather than knowns. The precautionary principle on steroids. This could happen. This might happen. We don't know for sure. It's possible. And on and on and on. Yet all of the could-happens, might-happens, and the possible-happenings haven't. <laughs> and when retired Brigadier General Anthony Tata cites a deliberately manufactured virus or an accident that happened in the Wuhan testing center, well, that speaks to an acceptance that this coronavirus is not the result of a natural occurring mutation or adaptation. And that appears to be the general consensus emerging across the board, though as always, our mainstream media is still viewing this line of thought as conspiracy theory misinformation. And personally, I think it does make a difference to the greater narrative, if not to the current crisis, whether or not actions related to the coronavirus were deliberate or accidental. And of course, that's the very kind of consideration that leads to the evolution of conspiracy theories. Or... Just theories? Can we just call them theories? I mean, any theory that talks about something that two people may have planned can be called a conspiracy theory. But there are all kinds of conspiracy theories in circulation, which in some way are connected to the COVID-19 pandemic. And among them, for example, it's a communist plot to intentionally destroy the world economy. True or false? Does it matter whether it's true or false, or does it only matter that that's a conspiracy theory and shouldn't be talked about? Serious misgivings about the sinister motivations and agendas of Canada's Theresa Tam and America's Anthony Fauci. I'm surprised at what I'm hearing in that regard alone. And then there's Bill Gates. Have you heard some of the things being said about him lately? I mean, that would take up a good hour or two to say nothing of the vaccines Gates has been experimenting with. This guy's getting quite an interesting reputation around the world, something I'm just learning about now. And of course... There's the corruption of the World Health Organization. And there's the political motivation behind the shutdown itself. There's a theory for you. A big conspiracy. And yes, there are widely varying theories about all of these issues, which is exactly what they are. Theories. 
They could be false, they could be true, or they could be something in between. But it's precisely because they are theories that they demand our discussion, precisely for the objective of determining their truth or falsehood. Shutting the door to debate and theorizing will never result in anything resembling the truth. So what has suddenly precipitated all of this concern about the possibility that the coronavirus was developed in a laboratory? Well, it could be the explosion of many documentaries and investigations leading to that exact conclusion, some that we cited last week on the show. But most significantly, on April 7th, the acclaimed and highly credible Epoch Times posted its documentary, Tracking Down the Origins of the Wuhan Coronavirus on YouTube, which pretty well demonstrated that the virus causing COVID-19 disease did indeed originate in a laboratory. And, specifically, it was released from the lab in Wuhan, China. And I had considered featuring some audio bites from that documentary, which is something I still might do on a future broadcast. But for today's purposes, instead of actually playing cuts from the documentary itself, I decided to play instead the reaction of Right Angle's Bill Whittle to the documentary. After all, our theme is all about conspiracy theories and what people think about them, and theories in general about what's really going on here. So we want to get all of this on the record before our government deems these conversations to be misinformation and disinformation about a laboratory-created coronavirus. And Bill Whittle presents his own theories about the Epoch Times documentary based on what he has seen in the documentary. And when we continue on the return side of our bumper break after having heard from Bill Whittle... Then I'll really mess with our heads by presenting a completely different narrative regarding the origins of the virus causing COVID-19 in the form of a conspiracy theory spun by a former military intelligence officer. We'll be back after this. I'll give you a brief rundown of what the case that's being made is. You can watch it and make the decision on your own. Tracking down the origin of the corona Wuhan virus. The case made here, again, using extensive things like screen grabs of emails uh, and so on and so on and so on, is that the Wuhan virus was not accidentally introduced by bats into uh, the seafood market. It is a virus that is that is uh, related to kind of things that we see in bats, coronaviruses in bats. But the woman who was uh, running the research at that lab had been doing experiments for several years, and this researcher over the last 10 or 15 years, they've shown numerous public talks of hers talking about the coronaviruses that live in the bat community. And what this guy is pointing out is that the structure of the virus that they find in bats is of a structure that makes it not capable of of being able to enter human cells and that what the Wuhan virus shows is that it is a variation of a bat virus which has been genetically modified to include a series of, of genetic code that basically uh, codes for the, the spike proteins. Those are the little stems on the outside of every virus image you've seen in the last 30 days. They're, they're basically protein spikes and these protein spikes are constructed in such a way so that the molecules can come into contact with receptors on human cells that essentially binds the virus to the cell and allows the virus to get inside the cell and then reproduce, explode, and go on. There's compelling evidence, virtually overwhelming evidence, that in the course of her studies this woman was attempting to take bat coronaviruses 
and splice the S proteins, the spikes, onto them so that they could enter human cells. And that argument, when they were finished making it, was very, very compelling to me. They point out in the documentary that once it became clear that there was something going on, the very first thing that the Chinese government did uh, was that they went down in force to the to the Wuhan seafood market, uh, cleaned it out, and, and, and utterly just gutted it. Which, if it turned out that it was just a rumor, doesn't seem like that's what you'd be wanting to do. You'd want to be collecting evidence. They ordered uh, samples destroyed. They ordered uh, examples, uh, cultures of the virus destroyed. And the story that emerges is that, um, this is the theory, is that this lab um, was working on bat coronaviruses, that this particular researcher especially seemed fascinated with the idea of being able to splice uh, coronaviruses from bats alongside the um, S-spike proteins that would allow it to enter human cells. And that in the beginning of the outbreak, once it was out of the bottle, two or three Chinese researchers at the facility had the courage to basically release to the world the genome of this and 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 call uh, ring all the alarm bells before they were shut down by the communist party and this whole story about the cover up and everything that follows after that is pretty well documented but the part that is not documented so well is what happened when it happened in the initial stages of this outbreak what happened to the um to the uh, Wuhan virus lab. One of, the, one of the more compelling arguments, actually, is a very simple one. Logic goes a long way with me. Uh, the Wuhan uh, laboratory is China's preeminent virology lab. Military applications of viruses were being studied there. Uh, I'm sure that's not terribly unusual. I'm sure we study them, and I'm sure the Russians, I know the Russians have studied them, and so on. But the point that's interesting that he makes is that the Wuhan lab has been very, very, very quiet. They've essentially gone completely offline. If it turned out that this virus did come from uh, from animal population and broke out at the Wuhan Seafood Mart, then why would the Wuhan Institute of Virology not be the number one news source in the world? They would have the most advanced information. And the fact that you're not hearing from them at all is kind of kind of spooky when they when they lock down Wuhan. I know they're trying to rewrite history, but basically, okay, they're claiming it came from a seafood mart. It's not our fault. That's where it just happened to leap from the animal population. If that were true, the Wuhan virology lab would be at the scene of the crime and would be issuing reports on a constant basis. But no, uh, the person who uh, people who believe in this theory uh, believe might have been patient zero, the first person infected from this. Uh, her biography is still on the website, but all pictures of her have been taken down. She's basically disappeared. A number of scientists around the world are asking what happened to her. The Chinese government is saying that, um, no, she's fine. So, well, can we see her? No, that's okay. She's, she's fine. This is what I think has happened. I don't think that this was a, a intentional release of a biological weapon for two reasons. First of all, if you're going to release a biological weapon in the world, I'm not sure it makes sense releasing it in the city where you developed it. And secondly, 
Um, while there is an awful lot about this virus that's suspicious, including its ability to simply kind of hide inside the body, that's alarming. If some of these reinfection data is true. That's extremely alarming. But I do think that the case that they make is, is exceedingly strong, that this got out of the lab and that the Chinese government has been doing everything about it uh, they could to cover it up. So now let's, let's get to the point of this particular episode. The reason that I that I was willing to just basically kind of think now it's probably not uh, intentional is because you didn't need it. At least I thought you didn't need it until I got more data. In other words, if there is a wet market where wild animals are being brought in, slaughtered, and then sold to people, this is in fact the perfect arena to bring viruses from the animal kingdom into the human population. And so this whole idea of it being manufactured, I kind of dismissed because that's all I know. It's manufactured. I said, well, you don't really need it. You know, you've got a good explanation for why this virus started in Wuhan. The The wet market is a, is a good explanation for how this got there. And then I got into this and, and saw uh, a number of uh, virologists saying, this, this is not possible. This, it is not possible possible biologically for this virus to have this genetic sequence and this genetic sequence in the length of t- in the length of them it's not just one or two um, nucleotides it's it's 20 30,000 of them it's not possible for this and this to have come together in the way they did randomly because the sequences are internally consistent if this theory is true and i really am be- beginning to believe it is true then what appears to have happened is that a Chinese research laboratory doing the most dangerous kind of research possible, namely taking extremely dangerous viruses and and creating versions of them that make it not only easy to infect human tissue but to make it unbelievably infectious among humans. Essentially, what they're doing is there are elements of, I hope you're ready for this good news, HIV um, sequences are in there. Um, And basically what they're saying is they they take a a respiratory coronavirus and they mix it with the genetic structure of the flu so that you get this thing that is as contagious as the flu, but far, far, far more dangerous. As I said, I don't think this particular thing was was a bioweapon. You could make the case that maybe they were trying to do research on a number of other things. Uh, I know that there's been talk lately about using viruses to go in selectively and kill cancer cells. But we're now in a whole different world if this is true. Because now, this isn't a question of, of, of nature deciding to come out of hiding. Now we're talking about a virus that has no human immunity at all because it's manufactured and is as contagious as it is because it's manufactured and whether they meant to let it out of the the, the uh, lab or not and I don't see any reason or evidence that they did do it on purpose but it did get out now we're talking about an entirely different level of uh, of culpability you're listening to just right broadcasting around the world and online so that was Bill Whittle reacting to the Epoch Times documentary tracking down the origins of the Wuhan coronavirus. We got a chance to hear from him, his own thought processes involved in putting together his own theory of a conspiracy surrounding the lab in Wuhan, China. And it wasn't all based on fact, per se. 
as Bill incorporated his own process of logic to the situation, as when, for example, he concluded that the release of the virus must be accidental, since no country would launch a biological weapon in the middle of one of its own cities. But a conspiracy theory it is, even if completely factual. And it is one of many. And as to the evidence and source narratives of some of these theories, in addition to the Epoch Times documentary, you might also want to check out the Rebel Media's April 2nd presentation by Ezra Levant entitled Coronavirus Bats Linked to Chinese Government Labs, Not Wet Markets. Just after last week's show aired and was posted online, our regular Just Right contributor, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Western University, Salim Mansour, sent me a very disturbing email attachment of a five-page article he scanned from the April 8th print edition of AMI magazine. Take a read of the attachment, wrote Salim. See what you make of it. The author is a former military intelligence officer. Well, I did read it, and I refer to the article as disturbing, not only because of its sinister implications, but because this narrative seriously disturbs the various narratives we may already be familiar with when it comes to the Wuhan virus origins. And yet, at the same time, what I'm about to share with you does not really invalidate or contradict most of the known and assumed facts used to construct slightly different narratives. I'm not here to tell you that it's the absolute truth, nor to suggest there aren't any other narratives that might also be valid. But as far as I'm concerned, the cases made in the documentaries I previously cited, as well as Bill Whittle's theory, all seem generally sound to me. Now this article bears a headline that would probably make most people want to dismiss it outright. How the Russians unleashed COVID-19 on the world. And it's written by a man named John Joseph Loftus, whom Wikipedia describes as an American author, former high-level U.S. government prosecutor, and former Army intelligence officer. He is the president of the Intelligent Summit. He served in the U.S. Army from 1971 to 74, attaining the rank of first lieutenant. He began working for the U.S. Department of Justice in 1977, and in 1979 joined their Office of Special Investigations, which was charged with prosecuting and deporting Nazi war criminals in the U.S. Loftus serves as a media commentator, appearing regularly on ABC National Radio and Fox News. He also writes weekly for AMI, an Orthodox Jewish weekly news magazine. And I found an interesting quote attributed to Loftus in the Los Angeles Times way back on October 23, 1988. Quote, there are three great evils in this world, communism, fascism, and indifference, end quote. So are you ready for this one? How the Russians Unleashed COVID-19 on the World. And I quote, the real name of the COVID-19 virus is Chimera. It is a weapon of biological warfare that was produced in Russia, not in China, as I and others have earlier alleged. China's neighbors have long since been suspicious of Beijing's pattern of covering up and suppressing news during previous epidemics. Only two weeks after patient zero arrived in Wuhan on November 17, 2019, word had already spread across Asia that a new disease had arrived in Wuhan. Taiwan started screening all visitors from Wuhan on December 1, 2019. Japan and Singapore quickly followed suit. The various Asian intelligence services were telling the media that some new coronavirus had broken out in China, which was true. The rumor that swept through the Asian intelligence networks was that the Chinese had developed a new SARS-based superweapon that had escaped from the BS4 lab in Wuhan. 
Only President Xi and a handful of others in China knew that part was false. COVID-19 was indeed a man-made superweapon, but no one in the Wuhan BS lab or anywhere in China had invented it. In fact, every lab, every scientist, and most of the Chinese intelligence services were frantically searching for an antidote to COVID-19 before it consumed their entire national economy. Since 2017, Chinese intelligence had ordered a massive desperate campaign to steal vaccines from every foreign laboratory they could infiltrate. It was a hastily rushed project and several pairs of the Chinese vaccine thieves were caught stealing vaccines from Canada and the United States. But there was no vaccine for COVID-19 anywhere in the Western nations. No one in his right mind would create a pathogen like COVID-19 without first having a vaccine. There was only one country among China's neighbors without a single case of domestic infection. It stood out like a sore thumb. Only one nation, Russia, seemed to have vaccinated its entire population in advance against COVID-19. That mass vaccination was known only to the Russian military because it was Russia that invented COVID-19. It was among the latest products in the new class of stealth bioweapons called Chimera. Colonel Kanatzan Alibikov, now known as Ken Alibek, was once a director of the Soviet bioweapons agency called Biopreparat. He defected to the CIA in 1992 and warned them about Russia's continuing development of Chimera. It was so horrible that the CIA simply refused to believe him. The Chimera is a mythical beast containing parts of different animals, the head of a dragon, the body of a lion, the tail of a snake, etc., Alibek said that the Russians were researching the creation of a super pathogen under the codename Chimera. The plan was to combine the worst of a number of diseases such as Ebola, the Black Plague, and various coronaviruses into one unstoppable invisible stealth weapon. End quote. Now at this point the author John Loftus recounts a history of how the Russians have in the past used viral diseases as weapons of war, including quote, against its restive Muslim minorities in the 1930s and against the Nazis in the 1940s, end quote. And then there's this paragraph which addresses why the Russians would do such a thing. Quote, the purpose of the new Chimera class of weapons was not to kill all the enemy soldiers or to commit genocide against civilian populations. Chimera was designed as an economic weapon. It would stealthily sicken workers, only 1 or 2% would die from it, but that would be enough to force factory closures and quarantines. Eventually, Chimera could destroy both the American and Chinese economies, and no one would ever realize the Russians were to blame, end quote. Then the author returns to an historical account of how precisely these kinds of strategies were used by the Russians in the past, including the use of possible Nazi bioweapons during World War II. He also cites American efforts back in the 1940s, quote, to create bug bombs to drop on North Korea and China, but none of these disease-infected insects ever caused terminal illness. Apparently, our bug bombs made a lot of people sick, but they recovered, end quote. Then, the most remarkable part of this conspiracy as told by John Loftus. To make a long story short, apparently the Russians developed the COVID-19 virus simultaneously with its vaccine, which had already been administered to the Russian population at large. Quote, as soon as the Russian population was protected by the aerial spraying of the vaccine, COVID-19 became the perfect stealth weapon to use on China, end quote. Now, at this point, you might be thinking to yourself, uh, wait a minute, Russia's having its own COVID-19 pandemic, with the city of Moscow being shut down. Well, fear not, we'll be getting to that part of the story, but not before citing why the Russians would regard COVID-19 as the perfect weapon. Quote, 
Everyone knew that all sorts of weird diseases like SARS and other coronaviruses came from Chinese wildlife. 60% of the RNA blueprint for Chimera was composed of SARS virus copied from bat RNA, but also included portions of other coronaviruses transmitted by insects to animals and then to humans. Four of the COVID-19 inserts seem to be a mix of bird viruses and HIV from humans. Scientists have no clue about the origin or utility of entire sections of the COVID-19. Chimera's mixed RNA made for a very confusing presentation. Scientists variously blamed snakes, pangolins, small-scaling mammals, civets, bats, dogs, and birds. To this day, there are scientists still trying to convince us that a bat virus could have passed to a pangolin, which was then eaten by a human with HIV and somehow evolved into COVID-19. The problem with the natural evolution theory is that it would take many months, if not years, for the different RNA changes from any previous coronavirus genome to evolve naturally into COVID-19. No remotely similar RNA changes have ever been observed in any single bat, mammal, or human. But somehow, portions of bat, mammal, and human RNA have all ended up in COVID-19. This is not just a novel coronavirus, it is unique. No other coronavirus in history has even remotely resembled the RNA of COVID-19. The RNA of this monster did not slowly evolve from nature over long periods of time. The RNA found in Wuhan, Japan, Vietnam, Australia, and India were all identical. Could a coronavirus have evolved in the same way in different places at the same time? Highly unlikely. Nor did a swarm of infected bats fly from central China across Asia to deliver COVID-19 without anyone noticing the arrival. The absence of RNA changes in a virus found in the same month in widely separated foreign nations proves beyond a reasonable doubt that COVID-19 could not have been the product of a long natural evolution. The lack of previous changes in the genome is strong evidence that COVID-19 was new and had been recently released on the Asian continent as a fully grown organism. End quote. Now, back to the conspiracy itself. Again, I'm merely paraphrasing what has been written with far greater detail by John Loftus. So the Russians had kept secret both their development of COVID-19 and its vaccine, which was stockpiled by the tons. But in September 2019, after some information leaked to the Chinese that the virus was hidden in a vector storeroom, quote, someone broke into vector storage area and stole something. A gas explosion destroyed any evidence of what the thieves had removed, but to the Russian military it must have been obvious the only thing worth stealing from that lab was COVID-19. And if China were allowed enough time to study it, they would eventually come up with their own vaccine. It was time to use Chimera or lose it. Whether Putin knew it or not, a decision was made in October 2019 to launch COVID-19 on China. The Russians did not have to drop a bomb. All they had to do was spray a few drops on patient zero as he made his way home to Wuhan. By the first week of December, people were dying not just in Wuhan, but all over Hubei province. As soon as the Hubei health authorities reported the novel coronavirus to Beijing, I think Chinese military intelligence already knew exactly what was going to happen. They would have to buy the vaccine. And the only place in the world that had such an enormous production capacity was Vector, which had stockpiled hundreds of tons of the vaccine. President Xi had no choice. He had to pay Russia's ransom or watch China's export economy get crushed under never-ending quarantines. I think a deal was cut for Russia to provide China with the vaccine for COVID-19. Hubei province was ordered to stop all testing for COVID-19 and destroy all documents, tissue samples, and lab results. 
This was not done to protect Beijing's tardiness in acknowledging the outbreak, which was already obvious to the world, but to eradicate any trace of evidence that could suggest Russia's connection to the launch of COVID-19 in China. In return for the cover-up, Russia agreed to release its vaccine stockpile from Vector. Once the deal was struck, China got tons of vaccine. By the end of February, the vaccine had been sprayed at night all over China. The result was dramatic. The daily count of new COVID-19 cases in China suddenly dropped to zero. There was no gradual tapering of the bell curve experienced by other nations. One day it was everywhere, the next day it was gone. Moreover, the Chinese somehow knew that the virus would not be coming back. The vaccine solved that problem too. Beijing suddenly ended all the quarantines and started sending workers back to the factories. And this sudden back-to-work order should have triggered another wave of COVID exposure when the workers came out of isolation and mingled in the factories, but it didn't, end quote. Now, if you think that wasn't more than most of us can digest in a single sitting, here's the rest of the story, as told by John Loftus. Quote, For the first four months of the epidemic, no one in Russia got sick from COVID-19. The people of Russia seemed to be completely immune to it, and they were, for a while. The Russian vaccine was designed only for their Chinese strain of COVID-19. But RNA viruses mutate every few months, and the old Wuhan vaccine would not protect Russia from any new strain of coronavirus that might be evolving in Italy. This new strain seemed much more lethal. The chimera was mutating. In February 2020, Russia's patient Zero returned from a ski trip in Italy with flu-like symptoms. The doctors in Moscow didn't consider coronavirus and they put him in a ward with other flu victims. This was a mistake. It took several days for a diagnosis to COVID-19 to be sent back and Russia was completely unprepared to deal with the stepdaughter of the chimera virus they had created, end quote. Now, this next paragraph was haunting to me given that I addressed this very incident on one of our recent broadcasts. Quote, on Saturday, March 21st, President Putin telephoned the Prime Minister of Italy and quote-unquote generously offered hundreds of Russian military and medical experts to combat the disease that was ravaging that country, end quote. Now, you might recall that I specifically mentioned Russia's help to Italy, and I specifically said this was no act of altruism but an act of self-interest. Little did I know just how right I was, especially if this narrative by John Loftus holds true. And finally, this observation, quote, Scientists in Iceland have now detected 40 different versions of COVID-19, each with variations in the RNA. No one yet knows what these new coronaviruses will do to human beings. The Russians made this chimera monster and then lost control of it, end quote. So there you have it. I left out a lot of detail, including names, places, and dates, but in general, that's the essence of the theory of conspiracy as told by former military intelligence officer John Loftus. If even only parts of this scenario were true, then given the Russian track record on its handling of dangerous elements, this would amount to Chernobyl too, the sequel. And as bizarre and out of left field as this theory is, it sure answers a lot of questions and does so without having to contradict any of the basic understandings of this pandemic that we have so far accepted as the most plausible narratives. My greatest misgiving about this theory is that if any of this is actually true, then that might account for the unprecedented political global response to it. But all the public's being told is that this virus is different, that we should stay home to protect ourselves. It's like, you know, my daughter Danielle kept warning me, maybe they know something they're not telling us. 
While repeatedly we keep hearing from our own medical care professionals that, quote, it presents itself differently, end quote, when encountering various cases of COVID-19. And wouldn't it be ironic indeed if China has not been lying about a decreased number of COVID outbreaks? Problem is, China has cried wolf so often that even should the Chinese ever tell the truth or offer something that's actually factual once in a while, no one would believe them. And I recall during the early outbreak of the pandemic how we all noticed that Russia wasn't very affected, and we all attributed that to the fact that Russia took its borders more seriously than the nations more severely affected. So how do we eventually arrive at the truth about coronavirus? One thing is certain, censorship is no answer. These theories, conspiracy or otherwise, must be allowed to be discussed in an open forum. There's so much we don't know, right? But here's the good news. We do know some things, and an unexpected possible response to the virus has, of course, been the discovery that hydroxychloroquine, along with a few other drugs, has proven to be remarkably effective in countering coronavirus. But Canadian politicians, unlike Donald Trump, are evading this solution and worse, are even resisting encountering it. Here is Laura Lynn Tyler Thompson, who we learned last week on the show, has herself been using hydroxychloroquine for almost a decade and a half, addressing this very issue on her own April 14th YouTube channel. I would give anything for that kind of guy right now. No, we do not have that. We have people who just don't want to go along with something because Donald Trump, you know, actually had a good suggestion. It makes me sick and it's going to cost lives and people are going to die because of this kind of attitude. It's disgusting. If your um, loved one, your parents, your spouse gets sick, if you're listening to this right now and you're seeing the evidence that I'm presenting, I bet you anything you're going, hey doctor, are we gonna be using that hydroxychloroquine? Yeah, you know, the one that Donald Trump mentioned? Let me stay on this issue of hydroxychloroquine. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to quote this board-certified rheumatologist for Cedar sinai Dr. Wallace, who I think, obviously, he's been prescribing this now, as he pointed out, 42 years in practice. He's been the head of has one of the largest lupus practices in the U.S., currently caring for 2,000 people, most taking HCQ, 400 peer-reviewed papers, chairman of the Lupus Foundation of America, the Rheumatoid Research Foundation of America College, and, and so many other credentials. And he said, in 42 years, no patient of mine has ever been hospitalized for HCQ. And he said the risk of taking it and the doses they're talking about, uh, in terms of a risk, he said it is nil absolutely nil um and you have been getting hammered for saying uh what have you got to lose even the ama saying well your life um i don't know i he seems pretty credible to me sir well it's been taken from malaria for many years and very effective it's a powerful uh, medicine it's a powerful drug but the combination has been pretty amazing you you saw the woman, uh, state representative, a Democrat, state representative from Michigan, Detroit, and she thought she was going to die, and she saw what we were talking about, and she uh, asked her husband to get it, and she would have never known about it, and he got it, and uh, she got better. She thought she had no chance, and she got better. She, she's she been very nice about it, actually. she I think she maybe might be a Democrat, but she'll vote for me, maybe. It's, uh, I haven't seen bad, I've, I've not seen bad. And one thing that we do see is that people are not gonna die from it. So if somebody's in trouble, you take it, I think.
My biggest concern at this time is the seeming refusal of Canada to press into the stunning results that have been given by doctors around the world on the miracle of using hydroxychloroquine with zinc as a hugely successful cure against COVID-19. It's also worth noting that this seems to be driven by politics, not science and not medical expertise. It seems that the left is playing down the drug and right-leaning society is jumping in and saving lives with it. And why would the left be doing this? Well, first, they are corrupt and ruled by money. Hydroxychloroquine is a cheap drug. It's made in multiple places across the world and it will not make Bill Gates any richer. The other sick reason that the left will not embrace this miracle drug is because one guy said it was good. You guessed it, Donald Trump. So here's an article from the New York Post, hydroxychloroquine rated most effective coronavirus treatment poll of doctors fines. To date, there is no evidence that any medicine can prevent or cure the disease according to the World Health Organization. Remember that, WHO, who, who are they? Well, they don't believe in uh, using something that's inexpensive, um, is already FDA approved, and can make a big difference in people's lives. Uh, as Donald Trump has said, what is the harm? Why not try it? The US Food and Drug Administration fast-tracked hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine for the treatment of COVID-19 last month after three separate studies showed the pair of anti-malaria drugs to be potentially promising. And what are we doing in Canada? We're gonna do our own studies. I guess that, you know, anything that's being done in the US is just not good enough for a drug that's FDA approved and been around for years and years and years. No, 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 before we can give it to patients who are desperately in need, uh, we need to test it again. So I'm not certain if you're hearing my, my sarcasm, but um, this is a problem. Well, I think it's more than just Laura Lynn's sarcasm that's coming through loud and clear. But it's not only Canada's Liberals who are working to prevent Canadians from getting the care they need on this issue, it's also Canada's Conservatives, who bear in mind are also on the left. This article from the London Free Press of April 17th, Sarnia's MP steps back from COVID comments. Quote, the MP for Sarnia, among Ontario's hardest hit areas for COVID-19 deaths, is stepping back from public comments that suggested sick Canadians should use an unproven treatment and that economic interests soon need to take priority. Marilyn Gladue, a conservative MP in Sarnia Lambton since 2015, in an interview with Blackburn Radio, incorrectly touted the nearly 100% effectiveness of a drug trumpeted by U.S. President Donald Trump hydroxychloroquine as a cure for the virus that has killed tens of thousands worldwide and shut down communities across North America. My comments were taken out of context and do not accurately represent the full plan needed, she wrote of the radio interview. We are in an unprecedented health crisis right now, and Canadians rely on advice from health experts that is based on evidence and research. End quote. Well, there you go. More evidence of what Laura Lynn has been saying. You know, hydroxychloroquine could be the very thing that does an end run on all of our concerns regarding the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And unlike a vaccine, it seems to work in such a way that it might actually eradicate all versions of the virus, much in the same way as simply washing your hands can get rid of it. But vaccine or no, there are no permanent cures, and it appears that this virus will be something we'll have to learn to deal with in the same way we've dealt with other viruses. We've got to live with it. And that's why, despite any of the cited risks associated with COVID-19, this shutdown needs to be ended, and the sooner the better. 
And speaking of shutdowns, here comes another one. As we invite you to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Uh, you can't have bad thoughts. You know, you gotta have positive feelings because that uh, those don't work either. <laughs> Because the deadly virus has no idea you feel real positive. <laughs> they feel pretty positive too. <laughs> and we don't have a cure for them. They obviously have a cure for us. Oh, I feel something. <laughs> it's only the virus twisting around my brain stem. I think it's the... Feel my brain stem a little liquefying. Oh well. <laughs> <laughs>